the truth of the matter is, you're only worth the value you bring to the table. And that value is determined by how much people are willing to pay for your services. What is going on with these high associate sign-on bonuses? And how can the average practice owner even compete? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the FedEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, the man, the myth, the legend. Dr. Dave Nickel, founder of VetX International, the home of this podcast, and a speaker, and a consultant, and a writer, and a long-distance practice owner again after selling his first hospitals back in the day. And like any good boss, when I came to him and said, help, a few of my guests had postponed. I'm out of episodes. He said, hold my running shoes. He runs sometimes. I got this. Here we go right into it with an issue on Dave's mind and probably many of yours. What is going on with the high sign-on bonuses for veterinarians? And is it financially sustainable to pay new blood this much? Okay, Dave, as you know, people are freaking out in all the places that I can think of that I talk to people in the English-speaking veterinary practice world, short staff, retention, everyone's panicked about hiring people in the door and keeping them. And then right before this, you talked about something that some people are panicked about, which is the gigantic size of some of the signing bonuses that they are giving associates and doctors right now. And obviously they're panicked because they're like, I don't think I could possibly offer that. So this is the economy of scale I cannot match. Whatever they're paying you to stay here for six months or a year and promise, I can't do it. Are people right to be panicked about those sign-on bonuses right now? I think they are because there will be or there is a market reaction to them. And there are, are many people who, in the absence of a better reason to do so, will choose money as the the determinant of where they want to work. That is certainly having an impact on people. There is a, certainly it's one of the big conversations of the moment. And boy, like the conversation changes so fast right now. There's so much stuff going on, but we've got a problem. And part of the problem, there's a reality component to it. And there's a perception component to it. The reality is we're in a, you know, an aggressively inflationary environment right now, which the latest headline I saw coming from the Fed was it's like 8.6 or 8.7% inflation in the US. It's 10.1 here in the UK. You know, we have inflationary pressures all over the world right now. And you've got that reality, which is in people's minds, which is causing, you know, causes fear. Naturally, we all worry about the certainty of being able to put food on our, our plate. I'm not so sure that we think so deeply about am I richer this year than last year we just think what does this mean in the here and the now for my ability to buy some stuff and food and pay medical bills or whatever things in your lane so it triggers the reptile brain in there because when you we all go to a store and we buy things and when the prices go up that's triggering so you're right in the grand scheme things in long term if they looked at how much they make a year long-term wealth building, you're like, oh, you're all on track. This inflation is really, if you sat down with a CFP, a certified financial planner, and they laid all the money out and said, this is a bad number, but it's really a small thing of the entire financial picture. But yeah, it's super, it gets you. Yeah. Over a 40-year career, obviously the decisions you make early and have the bigger impacts on them. But in an inflationary environment like this, it's likely to be short-lived. 
I hope. <laughs> like, it, it can be a long way. <laughs> and so we're running into, this is still part of the reality thing, that we've got this inflationary pressure that's pushing people to seek higher wages, to stand still. There's a reality, there's a knock-on reality of that, and that is that the those that control interest rates, the Feds or the Bank of England in the UK or whatever, but there's people who set interest rates, uh, usually central banks, and they're pushing interest rates up. That's actually driving inflation because we've all had such cheap access to money and people have gotten debt coming out the wazoo because it's cheap, but credit card bills are going to be harder to pay off. Mortgage payments, if you're not on a fixed rate deal and a variable deal, or if you're going to come off of a fixed rate deal, you know these are all realities they are pushing pet owners' prices up, but, but staff prices up as well. And so th- I think that's going to cause a couple of things. They're the economic realities. One of the harder things to square away there is that then you've got the notion of, well, okay, pay raises have to come from somewhere. But you've got an inflationary pressure there that seems to outstrip anything that's 8.6% because we also have a microcosm of an inflationary pressure, which is just basic supply and demand economics. There are far too many pets for far too few vets right now. And so, you know, practices, if they can't get vets, you know, there's a price war going on for talent. And of course, the, if you're getting involved in a price war, you better have the biggest pockets. <laughs> right. Because if you don't, you're going to get squashed. And independent practice owners all over the planet don't have the deepest pockets. I can tell you that categorically right now. You're not going to outcompete Mars uh, or Banfield or IVC when it comes to deep pockets. But a lot of these other companies are playing a slightly different game than you or I, particularly if they're in a private equity cycle. You know, they're playing a game of buy things cheap-ish and sell them for more than they bought them. So, you know, so they're not playing the same long game that you might be playing, uh, which is why deploying the same techniques as they might deploy probably not a good idea. Number one, you don't have the deep pockets. Number two, you're playing a different game. You know, we all think we're playing the game of veterinary medicine, but we're really not. Like private equity is not playing veterinary medicine. Private equity is playing, let's make shit tons of money. Right. Oh, and this particular play is veterinary medicine, but they're playing with 10 other games at the same time in their portfolio using these processes. You've kind of got the reality of this inflation environment. You've got hyperinflation for particularly clinical staff because you've got fewer people than there are demand for their services. So what you're actually finding now is that you, you know, you've got people who actually aren't very skilled at all who are asking for or demanding salaries that just aren't realistic or connected in any way to the skills that they can bring to the table. And this is a really, really concerning time for business because, you know, you can only afford to pay. Like the other reality here is you really can only afford to pay what your business can generate in profit. So the the demands of a a new graduate asking for $120,000, you know, the reality of that situation is that they're going to likely have to generate five times that $600,000 exclusive of taxes in order to make that investment worthwhile. So this is bad on both sides of the coin. That's great in the short term for the graduate if they sign on for 120000 but they're going to have to make that 120000 So here comes the pressure. You're not making your numbers. You're not making your numbers. Oh, by the way, if you're not making those numbers, who's having to pick up the slack to make the numbers to make payroll? 
that would be another vet. That would be a colleague that has to do that. Someone has to do it. There's no magic formula that just suddenly materializes this money in business. It's the clients that have to pay it. And so that's going to be a managing partner or something like that. Well, who's also the person you need to mentor and support you? Oh, crap. That would be the managing partner or the clinical director. They're working their backside off to make up the gap that your high salary is demanding. So you're not going to get the mentoring there. You know, this is the thing. People want high salary and they want high mentoring. Well, you know, there's a saying, you know, you can have good, cheap or fast. Choose two. Wait, can I be negative and play the devil's advocate? You know, you okay. mentioned early on the number is an easy to look at reality. So again, you go to the grocery store or you check to see what the home mortgage rate is. And you're like, well, it's all up. So I feel those numbers. Those are real numbers I can grab onto and say, if someone will give me a sign-in bonus or they'll pay me more, that's something I can grab onto. The promise of mentorship is, in many cases, a nice-sounding thing, but is an illusion. So this probably, maybe this will lead into, there's that reality of what these sign-in bonuses mean, but maybe the perception of how maybe that the fact that they can't pay that sign-in bonus or they don't have to pay this higher salary, there's something else they could do. Yeah, you've got something that is firm and tangible in the form of dollars in your bank, bank account. Correct. But burnout is pretty firm and tangible as well. <laughs> True. <laughs> right? And you go try try putting anything in your bank, your emotional bank account or, you know, your your physical bank account when you end up there. And we know that like 80% plus of the profession are very high risk of burnout or experiencing, you know, they're on the path to it. That's just not sustainable. And you're putting a few extra dollars in your bank account is real short-termism in that situation. Now, yeah, I get their student debt but you've got 40 years to pay that off and it's really cheap money compared to anything that you're going to borrow just now. But if you burn out and you're done in the profession, well, you're going to have to, you know, you've got some transferable skills, but you may have to retrain or invest in something else. <laughs> and that's going to acquire more debt, you know. And besides which, you know, this was the place that you decided, your heart said, I want to be and spend time in there. So it, it sort of makes sense to get good at this. And if you get good at it, then in time with a little patience, and you're really not talking like decades of patience, but three to five years to focus on getting good, then you're going to make a heck of a lot more in the future. So I think there is a little bit of a reality gap between what people think they're worth and what their actual value to a business is. And we seem to be playing this compare and contrast game with, well, medics get this, doctors get this, and dentists sure. get this, and lawyers get this. And you're like, guys, you don't get to choose. Like I see this on Facebook all the time. I'm worth this. It kind of drives me a little crazy. The phrase is you're, you're good enough. Okay. Yep. No, you're not. You just started by definition. You're not good <laughs> enough. Your skills I'm talking about here, not your humanity, not your, you know, the inner core or fiber you're being i'm talking about your skills as a veterinarian are not good enough that is just shit advice but i understand the tendency just as you've said oh. whatever the core of your being whatever religious principles we're talking about that say every human being made in the image of god yeah. everyone has worth as a living being that is sort of unassailable and that's what we're saying there but you're right you're saying you don't get to pick your sal you're not good enough for any salary you want because that's get determined by many things not just your inherent value as a human being we're separating these things out, right? Like, you know, our value as a human being is not connected to the awesomeness of our veterinary powers, and nor should it be. 
I mean, it's somewhat connected because if we want to self-actualize, we want to feel really good about ourselves, we want to build our self-esteem, growing skills and deploying them effectively and helping our fellow humans is a really, really effective way of doing that and an awesome antidote to burnout if you can set boundaries. But the truth of the matter is, you're only worth the value you bring to the table. And that value is determined by how much people are willing to pay for your services. So if you suck as a communicator, if you suck at recognizing disease, if you suck at actually asking a pet owner to spend money on that, if you suck at delivering the solution, if somebody else has to do all of that work for you, or you're highly inefficient, then the reality is you're not worth it. You're a warm body with a pulse, but you're a cost. This is the other reality for practice owners, is that you need to know your numbers here. And you need to know, okay, what are your staff expenses, you know, as a percentage of revenue, right. your doctor expenses, and then your support staff expenses. And for your doctor expenses, if you're working on, and it does vary from place to place and type of business to type of business, but somewhere between four and five X, the base salary is the revenue number you're looking for a doctor to generate. You know, for a lot of small animal practices, that's going to be a five X. So you pay them a hundred grand, you need them to generate you 500,000 in order to cover all the expenses that go with that. And those expenses, add, they add up really, really quickly. Now, if you have somebody who is generating you 350, you have a problem in your business because you're not making profit. And so if you're not making profit, there isn't money to reinvest and have all the nice things. But if you've got somebody you're paying 100 to and they're generating you 600, you also have a problem because now you're vulnerable to them being poached off elsewhere because that person's actually worth 120 and realistically should be getting that. So those are some of the realities, but you've actually got perception things as well going on, which are not reality. They're amping up the sort of fear level. So first of all, you've got agencies who are driving a lot of this, oh, you're worth more, you're worth more, you know, and I think are behind some of the frankly ridiculous numbers that are being thrown around like every day my inbox is full of agencies saying hey we've got this person and would you like to employ them <laughs> they're like three seconds out of college want to work for four hours of the day will not do anything but vaccines and they wish to have 500 bucks a day and i'm thinking what planet does that make any sense on like that would be an absolutely awful business because number one i know that person's lacks the confidence to do anything. They don't have the skills to do anything. You know, it's highly likely they will have a poor production you know, or poor a number of creation of opportunities for others to do work out of that, that they're barely available for enough time to make it worth being in the building. And the team, they're not going to gel with the team. You know, there's all manner of reasons why that's a bad idea. But the principal reason is the numbers just don't work. Unless you're perhaps completely, I can see if you're broken and you just need a day off and somebody to keep the doors open. But honestly, I would encourage you just to shut your doors, then spend that money on somebody who's likely to create your problems. Because most of the work you don't see today will still come in and see you another day. I mean, you've not taken the cost out. So you've got agencies driving you know, who have an agenda because they get a percentage of cuts, right? And I've yet to meet the agency who had my best interests at heart, some of the garbage I've been sent by agencies. You've got media who will pick up a story and it's a fraction of the market, but it'll be the headline. 
you know, for example, technicians now getting paid $40 an hour. You know, that would have had most practice owners actually stop, like the blood freezing in their veins. Now it's nice if you could do that. Yeah. But most places aren't doing that. And it will be one marquee place in a highly expensive location that's doing that for the most senior staff. It's not the norm across a network. So it's it's a headline. It's otherwise known as catfishing, <laughs> right? Like, hey, you can get, you could, you could get this. Prices from. <laughs> right. Buy the new sedan. Prices from 20,000. But when all the extras are in, it's like 60. You know, it's the reverse of that. It's like, well, you could make this. Actually, when we look at your skills and balance there, actually you're in about 25. It's funny. It feels like the vet tech veterinary profession version of what I see in, and this is in mass popular media in the US. So we're talking about CNN, things like that. Yeah. There'll be every week or a couple times a week, there'll be a story about how this 23-year-old makes $600,000 a day working three hours a day. And so it's some influencer or some person who hit on a particular product. And it is, it's the little diamond in the rough. It's the string. And people love reading that stuff. But you're right. It doesn't work for most people. No, most people cannot do that. So so it's kind of a headline that gets their attention. There's an element of me wonders if it's just a marketing play. Because, you know, it's worth it for the column inches and the attention it gets for a moment. But it also causes ripples and, and freaks people out. Um, over here, we had uh, one of the bigger companies. And actual fact, this is a really kind of, this was kind of cool. You know, they put their minimum salary for veterinary nurses to a certain number. And it kind of, everyone freaked out because it was about 20% above market rate. Okay. And actually, it posed some really good questions of, well, actually, you know, nurses and tech, they're really, really valuable. And they're highly underpaid. And this is the other reality I think we've got in the profession is as prices are inflating and cost of living is going up, like we've got to find a way to minimally match those and improve the working conditions of our, our technicians and support staff as well. Because there are so many other places they could go work that are an equivalent price band that don't carry the same level of, of pressure or stress. And so we're really, really have been reliant for a long time on the goodwill of our nurses and technicians of loving what they do. Correct. That's quite exploitative. So it was actually a really good challenge that we thought about in our practice. And I thought, well, yeah, that's actually a number and it's a bit of a scary number. And rather than just reacting and, and freaking out and, we actually said, well, how do we make it work? And it sort of led to thinking about, well, look, we don't have the budget to afford a company that's, you know, a much larger company can afford. You know, we've not got the buying power in the market to really squeeze the cost of goods and a lot of the services that make a few extra percent of revenue, you know, available as profit to reinvest and things like that. We're also playing a longer game where constant and consistent profit matters. So how do we make this work? And this sort of led me to the notion of, well, okay, if we're looking at the realities of the market and the perceptions that are out there, what is our reality? Our reality is we can't afford to do that otherwise. And this wasn't just about what the business could afford. We had to ethically think about what was okay for our community because all revenue comes from customers. And our customers are a local pet owner community for many of us in veterinary medicine, we're not practicing in the, the dizzy heights of, of Manhattan or Sydney or the most expensive suburbs of London, where you've got an abundance of, of cash-rich, very wealthy individuals. 
who have that really strong connection in the human-animal bond. Oftentimes, many, many practice owners are practicing in either rural areas or more deprived areas, places where cost of living squeeze really starts to bite. And we're faced with a very strong ethical question. When we're faced with just simply the option of putting our prices up and putting our prices up, and that's the only way we're going to fund, well, it's quite the only way, but it's one of the easier ways to fund pay raises, like sure. have to come from price increases or, or revenue increases somewhere, then putting the price up is the obvious one to go to. But of course, as you do that, you make veterinary medicine potentially less accessible. And veterinary inflation has outstripped top line you know, CPI or retail price index for a couple of decades. You know, It's been running way higher than that. So we've sort of started to leave the pet owner behind a little bit. And there's, you know, you, you could argue that there's a correlation between that and the levels of trust the profession enjoys. You know, the trust levels have been in decline for a little while. And the affordability of veterinary medicine has been getting, the gap's been getting larger for a number of years. So many colleagues I speak to, they're quite uncomfortable with just jacking prices because we already know, I think I heard Marty, Marty Becker talking about this, you know, the percentage of pet owners in the US that are already left behind financially is staggering. It's an enormous part of the market. You'll get like 50% or something like that. Like it's a big number. Now that number you'd have to verify because my hearing Marty saying it doesn't mean that that, that is Marty true. set it up on a stage somewhere. So it must be true. Well, it was in a podcast where I interviewed him. So, you know, so it's on, it's kind of on the record, but it's, it's still a scary number of people that, that can't afford to bring their pet to the vet and we trade on trust and you know so we don't really want to lose the trust of our public but the reality is we've got to fund those pay raises from somewhere now what i think is we've got to be smart about where we the ground we choose to pick our fight on and you know i don't have a business model that can sustainably jack prices up and can be the best salaried you know the best paying practice on the planet And there's two kinds of practices that that can afford to do that. There's the ones that are utterly, magnificently well-run, well-oiled machines, that they've got the right place, the right right client service mix, and they're just smashing it. And then you've got the hot messes that have to pay the most because they've no option. They only get people in by paying the most. They're so bad, we have to pay more money. Right. And I, I think my practice runs well but it's in neither of those camps. That's not the ground of choice for me. The ground of choice for my practice, for our practice, is to create a culture that people want to show up in. You know, if we look at the default culture for veterinary medicine, it's a psychologically unsafe blame hole where people just kind of break. Or it's a place where people go, like the mission of the practice is eat, sleep, vet med retreat. Sorry, repeat, Freudian slip. Eat, sleep, vet med, repeat. Eat, sleep, vet med, repeat. And eventually it does get to retreat because you just can't keep doing that or or people really struggle with doing that. So we figured if you can create a place that people actually want to work and are, you know, they've got friends at work, they work effectively and really crucially, they're growing. They're growing their skills in a way that allows them to bring more value to the table that's one of the ways that you can actually just everybody can start to win because I know which practice I would rather work in you know the one that is going to pay you more but is going to break you or the one that is going to pay you fairly 
but you're actually going to enjoy your career and, and you can go on and have a 10, 20 year career in practice. You know, that to me is a really obvious choice. It was a choice I always made. Now, am I a little bit less wealthy because I made that choice? Yeah, probably. But man, I would do everything, maybe not absolutely everything in my career the same way, but I would work in those practices again in a heartbeat because, you know, I grew up there and they were amazing. And listen, I've got a WhatsApp thread on my phone with this very, very tragic news that one of the one of the nurses I used to work with passed away, you know, way too young, like early 40s. And I hadn't seen him, um, you know, over 15, maybe, yeah, 15 years or so. Went back to the funeral, super upsetting, but also super nice to see so many people that just were dear friends in a bit of my life that will always be in my heart a wonderful time. Like I'll look back on that, even though it was hard, even though we were doing on-call, like like brutal on-call duties and, and working our guts out. But we grew up together, a group, and many people were in that place for, for multiple years, like five, six, seven years. I was there for nearly a decade. And there was a real beating heart to that business and seeing the messages and the love and the support in that WhatsApp group, there's nearly 30 people in that WhatsApp group who all just rave and reminisce about the time that we all work together there. That's sticky culture. And we'd all do it again. And we're all dispersed around the world. But but that is that the experience that people are having in veterinary medicine now? And you know what? It wasn't the highest paying practice. I could have gone and worked in five or six other clinics that had higher pay, paying practices at higher paying salaries. But I didn't think that they had that culture. And I wouldn't have had a sort of circle of friends that perhaps I've got now because of that or necessarily opportunities. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. Is the situation right now where people are new graduates coming out, there's this moment where they're fixed. They can be, they have either the privilege or the perspective that people are fixating on the money because as human beings, they've possibly heard negative things or they never had this kind of experience you're talking about in the workplace they are sort of pre-burned out i don't trust so the workplace has lost the trust of the associates and new graduates coming out you don't have my trust now so 
I don't trust you. You don't trust me. So when we enter into this, this is simply about a short-term money exchange. I'm not going to do anything more for you than I need to or want to. And you're going to pay me what we've contracted to. If you don't like it, cut me. If I don't like it, I'm going to leave. This is what has been talked about now for decades as the old thing, where as you've described, you join a company, you stay there for a long time, and you like the people, you feel some sense of purpose in the work, and you stay there for some length of time. Stints at workplaces have gotten shorter and shorter across professions. So is this simply, this is a generational thing, this ship has sailed, what you're talking about, where you stay at some place longer because you bond and you like the people and you find purpose in the work done in this particular place. I'll just play devil's advocate. Oh, that's that's gone. I mean, that's now it's a minority. What you're talking about is a minority. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's a really, really good point you make. And there's two things I want to pick up on there. Uh, one was they're pre-born now, and I, I think there's something to that. You know, you hear about how much stress the vet students are under. I think there is a bigger pressure now that really shows up there with the student debt that they're getting into. You know, the cost of undertaking these degrees is huge compared to certainly my generation and the generations before that, they got a grant. <laughs> they got given right. to go study these things. <laughs> you know, so it's obscene. So you, you've got that on one hand, but the pressure, the sense of having to be better than perhaps you really, really actually have to be. Like, you know, I said before, like, you're enough. And I said, you know, no, you're not. What I actually want to add on the end of that is, no, you're not, but that's okay. Nobody expects you to be enough just yet (laughs) except maybe you so get over that bit because the first step to awesome is awful and that's just something we've got to get to grips with but that's why choosing a place for the level of support you're going to get isn't just a short-termism you know it's not you don't need to stay somewhere for seven or eight or nine years I, i agree we're so much more nomadic we're so much more it's sort of work life fit now, I don't think balance is the right word. I don't, you know, I don't think integration, but what is the shape of your life and how does veterinary medicine fit the shape of your life? Like, so there's customization. Now, I, for me, I think there are, there are probably four things that practices can be tools they can use or ways they can think about creating attractive places that make them far less vulnerable to the signing bonus. Okay. Um, the first thing is, and Brennan, you and I have spoken in the past. I'm on the record as as not being a big fan of ProSal you know, myself. And there's been plenty of, <laughs> plenty of research that says that, you know, professionals, you know, that, that's not necessarily a, a good way to actually reward them. But if you're hiring on values and you're in this environment where actually things are moving so fast in an inflation in, environment, like you don't want to be having a conversation every three months. Oh, boss, like you know, the price has gone up two and a half percent. Can I have a raise? Can I have a raise? Like that's kind of like the crazy situation that you might find yourself in. I think ProSal or Base Plus as a salary makes sense because you know, pay a fair market rate. You'd expect somebody with a certain amount of skill to be able to generate for your practice. It's a little bit of a guess, but an educated one. And then offer them a percentage of their earnings over and above that so that the reward is linked to the production level now i think that on its own you know you need to be careful that you've got people who share your values and they do things ethically but that will sharpen up the mind of individuals to bill accurately because it's the percentage of vets who are actually unethical is it's tiny it's wonderfully tiny the percentage of vets who can't bill to save their lives or can't sell (laughs) to save their lives is 
horrifically big, right? So like, and, and Brennan, you in the number of invoices I've looked at over the years, you know, you're averaging about 15% just doesn't make it to the bill of stuff we did that the client already agreed to and said yes, but it hasn't made it to the bill. 15%. Well, there's your inflation busting pay raise right there if you're linked to ProSal. Now, you don't necessarily get it to 15%, but can you get that just to 5% human error? You know, don't miss off the anesthetic charges. Don't like, there's an argument that doctors shouldn't be anywhere near that billing practice because we're so bad at it or we're under time pressure. Well, give that to somebody else. You'll just about pay everybody's wages by getting someone doing that accurately. So I think ProSal, not low-balling people and then giving them a big percentage, but I think you know a fair rate that reflects a sensible market rate with the opportunity for them to show up and bring the skills to the table. And also that is paid not so frequently that you're exposed to way, we had a massive month and then you have a horrible month the next month, but it kind of averages out a bit, Okay. but not so slowly that there's no link between effort and reward. So, you know, quarterly, six monthly, you know, that feels about right. And then you run into the issue of negative accrual. And this was my big beef was that I work my guts out and then I take holiday and I'd accrue negatively because I wasn't working. Now, the business argument says, well, that makes sense. You're not making money for us. But it feels like then you're being punished. Like there's a negative impact of taking the vacation. And that had an impact on my behaviors of, well, I'm just not taking vacation. I'll keep working until I fall over in a heap. Then you have a great month, you come back re-energized, but you're slammed then. So you, you end up not getting bonus for a couple of quarters and it's really demoralizing. So I'm not not a fan of negative accrual, but I think it if you measure something out over the course of a year, you know, you should be able to set a base that means that, that it's fair, but they've got the opportunity to to grow. Uh, to so grow you're really just set. trying to, I mean, I've heard this for all, I had somebody up. Mm month ago was talking about practice managers, their compensation in some way should be tied into some hope of ownership or some investment in the practice. So if you have this stellar practice manager, they should feel bought in as much as anybody else. And it makes perfect. And so what you're talking about, these associates, you started talking about the current situation where the signing bonuses, the cost for these people does not match up with the revenue. The expense for bringing this doctor on will is decoupled from the revenue, and there's no way to couple it in the short term. So right. it's just going to be a negative hole the whole time. This feels like more trying to thread the needle between the two things. You don't want them to be crushed with negative accrual and feel bad if they take time off, but you also don't want to give them a salary that everyone else is going to have to pull as a weight on their back and is going to hurt the business because that will lead either way. It will lead to long-term problems. I feel, I hear you trying to thread that needle. Like, let's do a base pay with compensation. With Exactly. Yeah. And it's a partnership, Brennan. Yeah, ultimately, this is a partnership. You know, there's too much them and us in management. There is. No, 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 no. This is a partnership. It's like the same thing with clients, them and us. No, it's not. It's a partnership. Like you want to have healthy relationships, get rid of the them and us. We're all on team vet here. But we do have to run businesses that are profitable to be able to reinvest right. and make it worthwhile having ownership in businesses. So I think you're dead right. There's a threading the needle. And on that note, there's a lot of fine print that will go with these sign-on bonuses as well. Like I heard of one recently that said $200,000. Okay. That sounds good. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. And I think that's a, that's a plan. I've not looked at that, but you know, is that being paid out in one at the start 
like you can afford to run a business and do that. So my guess is absolutely not. That will be tight. It's not really a sign on bonus. I'm sure there'll be a chunk maybe up front, but you're going to have to hit production numbers and make that number worthwhile averaged out over what a decade. Right. We'll pay back your college debt. If you stick with us for 10 years, that's called golden handcuffs. Like good luck. If that culture better be good, because most we know it's not in most practices, yeah. right? So maybe it is, maybe it's not, but you've got to look at those things and be a bit careful about it. And also not be freaked out about it because it's a headline grabber. But let me tell you, when those people bounce out and they tell the truth of that story, if it's not as it's meant to be, if it's like catfishing, that's going to have a big negative impact on the culture, uh, the reputation in the workplace, the employer brand of any anyone pulling a game like that. So, you know, that'll be curtains soon enough if that's what's going on there. So one of the levers we've got here is is ProSal and threading the needle so that it's fair for everybody. I loved what you said about practice managers, and I would apply this to key staff who who work hard for your business. This is the model I've taken my practice down. They earn shares in the practice in return for commitment to the practice. And that's, we uh, have a scheme in place in our clinic to do just that you know senior team leaders have a slightly different one to the rest of the, the team but i want everybody to feel ownership and we have a profit share that you know, goes into a bonus pool every year so a percentage of our profit goes into a bonus pool and people will be paid based on two things their accomplishment of the objectives the reason they exist that job exists and their contribution to our culture and they're scored on both of those things throughout the year and they're getting feedback and their performance reviews throughout the year and those performance reviews are happening on a very frequent basis no big deal you know low stress half an hour chats every week performance conversation a check-in with your leader it's the linkage of the whole performance ecosystem to something that's very fair very transparent where if the practice wins everybody wins so i think that's one of the levers that we can pull that means we're not going to give you up front but if you come in and you work hard and the team wins, then you will also win. Will, will you make as much as there? Probably not. But let me talk to you about the other things that you might be able to benefit from. So the next one is culture and hiring for values and you know, working hard to build up a team that all has shared values. I think that's the second area to work on, culture forming. And by golly, we could talk about that till the cows come home. And then part of, and this is all kind of linked but part of that is making sure that every human being in your practice has a growth development plan that is co-authored, that they're invested in, that you're invested in emotionally, but also then financially, so that they can see a pathway from A to B that they're excited about and also helps the business achieve the mission. So there's a, a third way. And then things like employee ownership schemes, where you can really, in return for people's commitment, say a big fat thank you in a way that's more than just words. So each has upsides and downsides because nothing comes for free. And each depends on what you're looking for in the future of your practice. Maybe you don't want to give ownership away because it makes a sale messy sometimes. It makes it complicated if you've got minority shareholders. But the flip side is that you've got big investment, emotional investment in the practice. Practice having 15 owners rather than one it's a different ride at that point and the level of commitment will be a little different. So the thing I'd like people to take away from this is one, there's a difference between reality and perception here. 
not everybody's getting these sign-on bonuses. And the ones that do, even those ones, they're not getting all of their sign-on bonuses. Um, and the places they're getting the sign-on bonuses from may be really good, but may actually have other issues that they have to address. And that's why they're having to do the sign-on bonus. There are other areas. Get creative with salary packages. Work hard on your culture because culture wins, Brennan. Culture is the thing that people need to... If we get good cultures in our practices, you won't have people, a shortage of people. You'll have people queuing up to work for you. But that takes time. Growth plans. So people's growth is also linked to reward, not once a year, but like if they acquire a skill and they're deploying it, that's why ProSal is really good. They get instant gratification in their paycheck from that happening. But non-clinical staff, what about when they learn how to work a marketing system that's bringing you 5% better clients, not just more clients? Or what about that person who learns how to handle the combat conversations and they can turn those angry clients into happy ones or they can you know, get rid of the angry clients so you can take on better clients? That has value. So where's the, the reward for that? You're not just traditionally waiting for the annual review, negotiating a, a 3 or a 4% raise because that's a cost of living increment and clumsily doing it, but intentionally doing it. I think that there's a lot to be said for that. Ultimately, this has, has to win for everybody. And I think that is a generational thing that you know, it's work-life fit. So that the last message here would be, how do you customize the roles? You know, once upon a time, we, it was factory. It's like, no way, we build the business around what we need, not around the individual. I think that's flipped completely. And now every veterinary technician does this. Every correct. veterinarian does this. Every CSR does this. But we all like th- different things. Like I'm, I'm a single right. parent. Like I want that time is the most precious time I'll have with my daughter because she won't want to know me in three years. Right. <laughs> right. For other people, maybe it's it's fishing or scuba diving or something like that, but find what they love and find a way of helping them do that thing more or having access to that, and that's customizing roles. And our businesses have to be better at working around the shape of people's lives. And in a highly feminized population, a lot of that's going to be driven by family. So there's conversations to have there. I want to ask you my last question, so that, that thing about culture, it makes sense every time I think about it. I have been in businesses that had healthy cultures and businesses that had unhealthy cultures, and you could sit down and quantify that. How those cultures develop is often very organic, and it's different depending on the individual personalities that are in it, and it takes a lot of work to develop and then maintain and then you have to be intentional about it. So it takes effort and you have to be explicit about what you're doing. A lot of times these things are implicitly good cultures, but they're not explicitly good cultures. They don't talk about how we're a good culture and said in vocabulary. So there's a lot of work that goes into culture. When you talk to people about what their practices feel like in general, if you're taking the temperature of practices in the UK and in Australia and the United States, when you talk to people, do you feel like, oh, that makes me feel good about culture and practices? Or are you mostly like, boy, that sounds rough. That's rough. a rough one. I feel bad. Okay. <laughs> it's as rough as a badger's backside. <laughs> it's depressing. <laughs> well, it is, but we've gotten here for a reason because we've underinvested in this skill set. We've focused on the clinical shiny thing for forever. And we've gotten away with it because supply and demand, it was okay. I'm sorry, yes. generationally now, and supply and demand issues have absolutely 
put a rocket under this and the tide has gone out on culture and everyone on the beach is naked. Here we got to pull those swimmers up because <laughs> that's not a good look. And that means hard work. And there's, there's no clear connection between the work you do to build culture and the bottom line immediately. And there's no fast route to get there. But with intentionality and commitment to it, I think it's the only sustainable choice for us to go down. Culture is the battleground for the next 10 years. And the practices that invest in this now, they're going to do just great, regardless of size or ownership structure. And the practices that don't are going to burn out and be bought out for crappy values because they, valuations, because they just, they can't hold on to staff and grow the businesses the way they want. You already know how to find us at FedExInternational.com. If you want to learn more about Dave, visit drdrdavenickel.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave us a review on any platform you're on. Tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. And if you want more, you're in luck. This time we gave you the whole extended episode, but normally the extended episode shows up exclusively for our leaders community. And of course, you can learn more at vedexinternational.com. And until next time, Dave and I just want you to know we appreciate you.